This is Happy Monkey. This is Happy Monkey. Oh, yo, this is uh, Mr. Autofighter. Happy Monkey. I'm smoking on that gelato right now. Tell me, get at me. What's going on, everybody? This week, the podcast has a sponsor, ArdentCannabis.com. They're known for the Ardent Nova, which is a decarber, but now they have a new Ardent where they decarb and infuse in the same device. So if you use our code MONKEY, M-U-N-K-E-Y, when you're checking out, you get $30 off your purchase. So please go on and check them out. They got a bunch of other devices. Hey, you might get lucky and find something that'll help you cook in your kitchen. Yes, yes, yes. Today on the Happy Monkey Podcast, we love having strong queen boss ladies on the show. And on the boulevard, we got a real boss lady. She does a lot of journalism. She's done a lot of reporting up in this bitch. She's a motherfucking boss. And do you want to give her more details, Mr. Vladimir? <laughs> yes, ladies and gentlemen, this uh, young lady, Man. you know, Latina superhero Absolutely. is like, you know, uh, somebody that we look up to and that has definitely set the bar high in media for Latinos and just for people in general. Uh-huh. She's an author. Yes, She's yes. an anchor. Yes, yes. Our sister from another oh, mother, Maria, Maria Inosa. <laughs> Hi, you guys. You almost got it. Inojosa. 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 Definitely please reintroduce yourself and tell everybody where they can find you. Maria Inojosa. People, people, many people don't know what I look like, but they know what I sound like because they've been listening to me for 30 years. Sometimes it's really funny. Like I'll get in the backseat, like of a, well, you know, before the pandemic, I'd get in the backseat of a car anywhere, any city. Seattle, Dallas, Atlanta, Chicago, New York. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like on the phone having a phone call. And all of a sudden, after I had finished the phone call, the driver would turn around. And they'd be like, are you are you the lady from the radio? And I'd be like, <laughs> yeah. And they'd be like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, yes, people often know me just by the voice. But, yes, it is Maria Hinojosa. And I'm so thrilled to be here at Happy Monkey. Thank you. Congratulations no. on your work. Congratulations. No, 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 no. Thank you for other taking Latinos, out the time. Yeah, yeah. Other Latinos making headway in other kinds of business. It's, you know, we're all trying to do the same thing. Get ahead. But people like you know made us know that it's possible by the bar that you've raised and all your accomplishments mm-hmm. already. Wait, so before we move forward, can we let everybody know where they can find you as far as social media or like website or anything like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um... So I most I have a lot of fun on Instagram. So my Instagram is Maria underscore la underscore Inojosa. And Inojosa is H-I-N-O-J-O-S-A. Um, so I have a lot of fun on Instagram. That's where I have the most fun, you know, where I post like the real me. But I have a, a, a pretty large presence on Twitter. Well, I mean, you know what? I don't know. I don't know what's considered large anymore, but I have a, a following <laughs> on Twitter. And there, what is it? Maria underscore Inojosa. 
And then on Facebook, I'm still there on Facebook. I still make appearances on Facebook. And I think it's just Maria L. Hinojosa. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm around. But I really like IRL, mostly. Okay. In real life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what this guy loves. So, so we wanted to start, Maria, by asking you, because you have so many different things that you've accomplished, have you done? You know, we got to start one at a time. Years rocking. Uh, we, I know that you're a founder and director of Futuro Media Group. Yes, that's right. So can you elaborate a little bit for the people out there that don't know what it is and what this uh, media group does? Yeah, so basically, the, 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 the short version is um, I'm born in Mexico. Um, and my dad is a nerd Mexican dude from Tampico mm-hmm. who basically decides that he wants to become a research doctor dedicated to research. Um, and he decides he wants to help people who are deaf to hear. So he gets a job. He gets recruited by the University of Chicago. You're being humble. And He's he brilliant. Helps. He is brilliant. He is. He, he, <laughs> He's he, brilliant because I'm like, I, What? I didn't know that until I went to see a doctor like about 10 years ago. And he told me, you know, anybody who works with the inner ear is like a genius. And I was like, what? And they were like, the inner ear is the most complicated part of the human body. And I was like, bruh. So my dad was a genius. He gets recruited to the University of Chicago. And we're all basically raised, um, all Mexican citizens, except for him. He became an American citizen. And... um, and even though we never saw ourselves in the media, like there were no podcasts, there were no people of color Mm-mm. doing like the news, no journalism. But somehow I kind of, I, I consume a lot of journalism along with other things. And so, um, <laughs> and so um, I, I don't know, this little dream comes to my head when I'm in college already. I moved to New York. Um, so I'm a Mexican who moves to New York in 1979. There were no Mexicans here, by the way. There were like three of us. Um, it was, you know, very Puerto Rican, very Cuban, very Dominican. Mm -hmm. I had never met any Dominicans until I came to New York. Oh, we ruined it. And yeah, yeah, it was real. Um, and so basically I start doing college radio, um, at Columbia University. Okay. Columbia. Okay. at, At Columbia. And so... I start actually, empiezo un programa de radio que se llama Nueva Canción y Demás, que es bilingüe. We start doing our show in Spanish, Nueva Canción y Demás, doing all political music. It was really, really hip. And then I become a, a journalist. Um, I get a, I'm the first Latina ever hired at NPR in the newsroom at CNN. I give a round of applause for that. Don't talk about groundbreaking. Come on. Absolutely. That was huge. That's crazy. <laughs> So, um, and then after all of that, you know, because a lot of that, you really are basically working for the man, you know, you're working for somebody else Mm -hmm. and that's interesting, but also can get tiring when we really want to create like, like you guys have, like you guys are doing and have done. And that's what leads me to create Futuro Media is basically this notion of like, wait a second, I don't want to work for anybody anymore. I don't want, honestly, and I write about this in the book, I don't want to have to convince another white man that the stories I want to tell and report and investigate are important and legitimate and should be discussed. I mean, you have to remember, most of the news media that we consume in this country, white men, straight, cis white men, cis male, 
white men of privilege are leading that stuff. Not to say that they're bad human beings. I mean, I like a lot of these guys. They're, they're just like viewing, they're, they're, right. they're just putting things out there in their perspective. Exacto. Entonces, right. what we're saying, what we're saying in Futuro Media is we have a perspective, right? We have a perspective and it's as legitimate and equal to yours. And so we're going to be the journalists. We're going to be the ones in charge. That's why I create Futuro Media where basically I'm, I'm the boss. Absolutely. And then you got the your, your home, like you said, freedom of speech is important because like you just stated, I'm sure that you weren't able to just talk about all the things that you wanted to like just talk about, right? Well, for example, like when you work in the mainstream news, mm -hmm. like there in my newsroom, there are words that we don't use. For example, we don't use the word minority. But you don't use it no, because people, they tell you not to use it? Like they give you like no. a list of words not to use? No, 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 no. Okay. In in the mainstream media out there in the world, mm -hmm. people talk about minority groups and they report about minority groups. At my newsroom, we don't talk about minority groups because we're not a minority. Uh -uh. It's a lot That's of us what here. I'm saying. Yeah. We report about people of color. That's what we do best. But mm -hmm. I don't ever refer to us as a minority, members of a minority group. And, you know, we're not minorities. Latinos right now are the second, after white people, white voters, we're the second largest voting bloc in the United States of America, more so than African-Americans. That's crazy. So together, African-Americans and Latinos, Asian, Native American, we're the majority. Hmm. So... That's a term in my newsroom that we don't use. We don't use the term illegal to refer to a human being. So you'll never hear us talk about illegal immigrants. You'll never hear us talk about, oh, it's illegal, that illegal person. No. Yeah. We never use the term illegal to refer to a human being because we're human beings. We're not, we're not illegal. Mm -hmm. You may commit an illegal, <clears throat> you may commit an illegal act. And recently, up until recently, you know, smoking. I'm old school, so I call it a joint. I know <laughs> y'all call it all different kinds of terms, but I'm just like, you know, smoking a joint was illegal. Joint, joint is the most popular, don't worry. And still, right? Mm -hmm. So um, so those are the things that we're able to do with a newsroom that I run. That's basically why I created my newsroom, was to create my own media the same way that you guys are creating media along with other things. Absolutely, and I think it's the perfect time, Maria, because from me talking just like to the general public of all walks of life, it seems like people have lost the faith in mainstream media. So it's a great time to have you know media groups like you and us and other people giving their own perspective because people have lost faith in mainstream media, and I mean all types of people from all walks of life and all classes. So really think people are really open right now, receptive to new ways of thinking and viewing and, and broadcasting. True, true. And you know what? I'm very critical of the mainstream media. I mean, I play in the mainstream media. Um, you know, I appear on MSNBC um, every now and then. I used to be on a lot more Um so that's something that's interesting that suddenly, you know, you're not showing up, which is weird. Um, so, you know, my show is heard on public radio stations um, across the country. You know, I'm publishing a book. I'm, I'm publishing my book, you know, Once I Was You, A Memoir of Love and Hate Ooh, in a Toward America. That nice. Which I know it's very fancy, very mm -hmm. fancy, mm -hmm. very, very okay. fancy. 
um, this is going to be published by Simon and Schuster on um, September fifteenth. So I I play in the mainstream media. I I dabble there, but I run my own company and we produce our own material. And I do think that, you know, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater in the sense of the mainstream media because it's very powerful. It's 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 mm-hmm. it's mainstream, right? So I'm not going to throw it all out. I still want to make sure that estamos como indagando that we're always poking that bear. Mm-hmm. But I do think that yeah, people want different kinds of media, and now in this moment, we're all kind of competing. I mean, we right now this show is competing with the most powerful podcast in the country, which is called The Daily, released by the New York Times. Um, this show could try to get as many listeners as that show. We're, we're kind of on equal footing. And in that sense, it's good for American media and journalism. But um, I do think we need to demand more from the mainstream and we need to make sure that they are representing us because they do have such a large influence. Well, it's important that people like you understand how to dabble because if not, how people like me and Vlad got to understand how to even play on that type of level. Yeah, in fact, in the book, I write a lot about um, that dabbling. in, And I don't know how it is in your business, mm-hmm. in the cannabis business, because um, I, I, I actually want to report about the cannabis business. But in the world of journalism, <clears throat> you know, you have to basically be able to like, um, ¿cómo se llama? Um, shoot the shit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with uh, oftentimes with white guys you know so you got to be able to just kind of like yo yeah so you know and just kind of like a and and you have to be able to do that um it's kind of like playing golf although i don't play golf but you have to know how to move in those circles and i'm i'm you know one of a handful of latinas that has been there i, I want to understand something maria because you just you know you have so many accolades and it's all normal to you but you know you're very inspirational and you've done a lot of monumental things and you just skipped over real quick earlier very briefly like it's nothing but it's really something i want you to elaborate how does a latina you know what i mean from you know originally from mexico come to new york and end up being the first latino on npr national program like that public national public radio so here's the thing um i told you that my dad was a nerdy nerd um a scientist so we were not poor we were not working class we were not rich pero no nos faltaba claro i grew up with an immigrant dad so everything was always super controlled and you know there was never enough and all that kind of stuff but Um, but I had privilege. I had privilege. I ended up going to the University of Chicago High School, which is a very prestigious high school. It's where um, it's the school where Barack Obama and Michelle used to send their kids before they moved mm-hmm. to the White House. So I was able to go to that private school because my dad was part of the university. So we didn't pay full. We didn't have to pay the full tuition. That's how we did it. And so I understood privilege. And for me, Privilege has always made me understand that I have to give back. And so um, even though I write in the book, Once I Was You, a lot about the imposter syndrome and just never feeling good enough and always feeling like I was having to prove myself all the time, um, I forced myself to battle through that 
because I knew I had privilege. I was like, no, no puede ser de que tú, que has ido a las mejores escuelas, you know, you've gone to the best schools, you've grown up around people of privilege, that you are going to kind of cave to your own insecurities. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, 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 no. You have to f- go, go into that. You know, when NPR and I'm the first Latina and I'm in those editorial meetings and I was like, levanta la mano, but raise your hand because, you know, it's an editorial meeting and you're convincing stories about your idea. You're convincing people about your ideas for, to do a story about this. And it's a very scary thing. And it's a lot of very powerful and smart white men and women. And I would literally like force my hand up. Like I'd push it up. I'd be like, no, no, say, go ahead. Because I was terrified, but I understood like I had... I had to do this. I was the first. Yeah, you got to participate. I was, I, I was in that space. I had to participate. I just had to. That's, I think, that's the long, that's the long answer. So how do you do it is because I basically just said, um, you have no choice. You know, you have a responsibility. And, and because there is a large audience for the work that I do. And so I, I also feel their love. How long has uh, Maria um, Latino USA, which you're the anchor of, how long has that been going on for? And I know that like that's like one of the most popular shows on NPR. How has that come about? And how long has it been for you doing that? So we started that show in 1993. So it's almost going to be 30 years. In 2023, it will be 30 years old. It's 27 years old now. And... If people, I know I started it when I was three. I know I look great. This <laughs> is <laughs> Latino USA. You're correct. Um, You're correct. You look- <laughs> um, thank you. Um, so Latino USA started because Latinos were pushing for a show like that. It did not start because public radio is like, oh, we need to have a show for Latinos. It started because Latinos and Latinas were pushing for it, mm-hmm. it uh, specifically, it. and demanded it. I mean, you guys are in New York, so you know what Channel Thirteen is, right? Mm-hmm. It's, oh, it's the, the public. It's access. the public. It, it's the public. No public television, mm-hmm. not public access. Public television. PBS, right? PBS, exacto. Mm-hmm. Public broadcasting system. In the 1970s, Latinos took over Channel Thirteen and shut it down because they were demanding to be on the air. That's how political the public media airwaves are. So people were demanding for the visibility of Latinos and Latinas on NPR. And that's how I ended up basically, you know, creating an inroad, getting hired, creating a position, then being named to anchor Latino USA, um, helping to envision this show. And the truth is, is that I think people thought we'd be around for like maybe five years, if that. maybe six. Yeah, if that, kind of like, oh. And our audience right now is one of the audiences on public radio that is growing exponentially. Like we're actually seeing market audience growth. And it's like, bro, you've been on the air for 27 years. ¿Qué es esto? And it's because we've changed. We've, we've adapted. We're, we're different than when we first started. We've kind of stayed with the times. And the reporting that we do, the journalism that we do is very beautiful. It's very dramatic. 
<laughs> you know, it's, it's um, you know, some of it is very sad. We do documentaries about um, immigrants in very challenging situations. Ya tu sabes. Um, but we also uplift, you know, I don't know if you guys know, for example, the most famous woman tattoo artist, Kat Von D. Uh-huh. Yes. Do you guys yes. know? You know, she's You've Latina. Uh-huh. I had no idea. I didn't know that. Chica- she's, she's, she's Chicana, a- right? Isn't she? No? She's Argentinian, 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 born in Mexico. Oh, yeah. But she, so. but she is raising her kid only speaking Spanish. And she's married to a Chicano goth artist, musician. <laughs> so we, we did a big profile of, um, of her because a lot of people don't realize how many Latinos and Latinas are. We're everywhere. We're doing everything. Not everybody knows that Happy Monkey is from, you know, by... They don't know. Yeah, they, 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 they did not know. A lot of people didn't know until we started, like, coming out a little bit more, but... Yeah. yeah. All right, so before we get too deep, because I know there's a lot of things we can talk about because there's a lot of questions we want to ask you because you're a boss lady and you've been through a lot of shit. But the most simplest question we love to ask everybody is here, because, yes, this is Happy Monkey and this is definitely a cannabis show, is please... Tell us, when was the first time you got high? The first time. Oh, first love affair. Because you've been through all this stuff, so I know cannabis had to be involved through all of this. Oh, my God. Wow, I've never talked about this. Ah, this is what we're on the Happy yeah, Monkey that's Show for. That's why we're on the boulevard. We like to talk about everything. You got to get all the juicy details, Maria. Oh, my God. Maria. Wow. You got to say Maria. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely Maria. Wow. Okay. Was it a so, joy? Um, yeah, no, it's all right. So, um, well, I feel bad because I never told my dad this, you know, and my dad, may he rest in peace. So, papi, perdón, you know, okay, I'm kind of like <laughs> revealing this because I never asked. Right. I never I never told you this. And a lot of the book actually has to do with kind of my relationship with mi papá. Very beautiful. Not, not, it's not heavy handed, but, you know, one of the things that happens with, well, well, actually, it's very pertinent to this story because I think what happens with Latinas and Latinos and immigrants is that we feel very torn, right? We want to be really 100% real to who we are, like our roots. But we're also like in this country and this country uh-huh. really represents kind of like really radical, free thinking, independence, kind of go get it, you know, egotistical you know, quítate tú para ponerme yo, you know, doggy dog. Kind of That's right. You know what I'm saying? Like so, um, so, so, oh, I forgot the question. The so, so what happens is, is that it's always like this, like you want to be the good Mexican daughter. But, porque sí. yeah. But por otra parte, you're also drawn to being rebellious because you don't want to be that because you don't want to be your parents, right? Because your parents represent the old traditional kind of thing. Bueno, para que sate, como te hago el cuento. So, um, you know, regular grammar school stuff, I get, I had a group of girlfriends and they basically me tiraron para afuera. They ostracized me. They just threw me out. And I was like kind of without a group of girlfriends in, in grade school. And my grade school was very diverse. 
So I had black friends. I like had Like some breakfast club Jewish shit? Friends. Like, you know, like too cool for school? Like, like hierarchy? No, no, this is grammar school. So it's yes, baby it's a little stuff. Bit different. I mean, yeah, it, this, is, this is different. I mean, like, I, I'm talking about third grade, fourth grade kind mm. of stuff, okay? So basically, I become friends with the group of girls that were known as, like, the rebel girls. There were triplets. It was the triplets. They were known as the triplets. It was <laughs> they had, they three grew. girls. Three girls, Heidi, Heidi, Danielle, and the third one. And there was another, you know, and we, we, we basically, like, we were pretty rebellious. And they were, they, ah, you know, like, they smoked cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really like cigarettes, but, you know, I would smoke cigarettes every now and then. Like, ooh, it was gross. We would pick up the butts off the street. Ugh, what right. the fuck were we thinking? Um, <laughs> ugh, it's gross. I hadn't thought of this. Wow, crazy, stuff. yeah. Uh, but they and they had boyfriends, you know. So now we're talking sixth grade, mm-hmm. sixth grade. We were little kids. I was twelve. But the mother of um, well, the, actually, the mother of the triplets was nowhere to be seen. But the mother of the other girl, Stephanie, she was very hip. She was like a hippie, you know. She was white. Um, her 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 compañero was black. Like you know, they had like it was very hippie esque. And the neighborhood where I was growing up in Chicago was very hippie-esque. It was the University of Chicago community of High Park. So very university-like, very bohemian. And so I would go to their house after school. And we would, you know, just hang out and they would smoke cigarettes. And then one night, one Friday night, we were having dinner. And we it was a bunch of 12-year-olds, 12 and 13-year-olds. And Stephanie's mother and her boyfriend, we sat in a circle and basically they passed around. They haven't been sarquera. Oh my God, was it a pipe? I can't remember now if it was a pipe or if it was a joint. No, it was definitely not a bong. Definitely not. No, no, no. This is, this is, guys, I'm talking about 1970, a ver, 1973. So, yeah, the, <clears throat> there were bongs because <clears throat> it was the 60s. But no, this was a very – and it was a young mother basically getting high with her te- – with her, yeah. not even teen. I mean, we were 12 and 13. So there's something cool about that, but there's also something like, really? Wow, she was okay. wild. Yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of like – Entonces lo que pasa is that I was not allowed to be sleepovers, not allowed to do sleepovers. Entonces mi papá me vino a buscar. It was always set, you know, at nine o'clock, I'm coming to get you. <laughs> and so my dad came to get me when I was high as a 12-year-old. Oh, you me da mucha pena, me da mucha pena. Nah, I, be okay. I felt so bad, you know, because I remember just feeling like my throat was a I feel I felt like I had a piece of coal in my throat. So I don't really think I got high, but I feel like I had the physical experience of something that happened. And I remember like something like feeling like a piece of coal, very hot. So something was burning in my throat. And I just remember sitting in the backseat thinking, if only dad knew, if only dad knew. And kind of like, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a bad Mexican girl. I'm a bad Mexican girl. And, and make sure he doesn't notice and make sure he doesn't notice. And, you know, so I didn't really experience anything. And then I went into high school and there I started hanging out with my brother, actually Jorge, and he was older and all of his friends, they were all smoking pot. And so 
it was kind of around. So now I'm, you know, 13, 14 years old and it's kind of around me, but I never really enjoyed it. And the one time when I actually, so actually experienced getting high would have been maybe when I was maybe at the end of my freshman year of high school, y no me gustó para nada. I mm. kind of freaked out, honestly. I, I had that freak out, which paranoia. happened, which is mm-hmm. just the, the, not the paranoia, it was the double spacing. The, <laughs> the, and now I kind of, you know, I'm like, wow, that was They might have put something feeling. in your weed, girl, because that <laughs> sounds sound like some 70s trick. They put some PCP or some acid or something in that. Oh, shit. I, that you're scary. I don't know, cause that's what it sound like. It sound like they put something in your weed. You see some was, spaces in 3D. No, it wasn't hallucinogenic. It was more just like the the head thing that happens when you mm-hmm. get high, okay. right? Okay, yeah. You, but you had I was like a young, head rush. and so had, had head rush. So basically, I stayed away from it. I was very minimally connected to it. Siempre estaba a mi alrededor. Mm-hmm. People were always smoking. I'd take a toke. I do remember the first time I took a hit off a bong. That was unforgettable. Oh, my God. Unforgettable. <laughs> oh, my God. We were at a party at a university. It was the University of Chicago party, but we were high schoolers. Somehow we got into a college party, and somebody took out this thing that I had never seen before. You know, it was like, you know, it was so maybe three and a half, four feet. And I was like, ¿Qué es eso? And they were like, don't worry. Just put your mouth on it, and when we tell you to suck, you suck. I was like, okay. Oh, my God. But, you know, I had experiences. It was really extraordinary. My head blew off. But I had experiences like seeing Peter Tosh performing on stage with a spleef, you know, with a spleef this big. You know, he was singing on stage with, um, with Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. Um, and then, and then later, much, much later in my life, um, eh, actually, that's what ends up happening is that um, my husband, who's an artist, a very well-known, famous Dominican artist named Herman Perez, he Herman was Perez. using cannabis as um, as part of his, you know, kind of work artistically, and and that was when I actually began to enjoy it because I never actually bought. Marijuana, never. I mean, I was right. like, wasn't. that's how, that's how little I smoked. I never, ever had it, bought it, but another. You were a sm- nada, social nada, smoker whenever, yeah. you know, it was a social setting or whatever. Completely, completely. Right. But after, after 9-11, mm. that's when cannabis, I remember Herman said to me, I would smoke on the weekends. It was something that I would do only on the weekends. And, and Herman said, um, that's where I was through suffering through very extreme PTSD because um, I was a correspondent for CNN at the time. And that's when Herman said, ¿Quieres fumar? De repente te haría bien. Do you want to smoke? I remember it was maybe a week and it was the middle of the week. And I was like, no, pero es que I have to go to work tomorrow. And he was like, yeah, but maybe. And that's, I remember smoking and just like, whoa, wow, this is really helping me to take a pause from the horror because I was a correspondent for CNN. And so I was Mm. seeing horror every single day. And that's when cannabis became much more a part of my life. And when, frankly, um, I'm really happy to be able to talk about the fact that it was, it was self-medicating because I wasn't going to take any kind of pharmaceutical pill and I'm not a drinker. 
Um, but it is the thing that did help me kind of process through PTSD. So, yo le doy muchas gracias uh, a la mota, la motita, como le decimos wow, en México. That's crazy. So, you, you, you mentioned something that, I kind of, that we kind of like to talk about, every, especially now that we got a Latina here, right? So, you mentioned the whole um, feeling the stigma from dad, you know, good Mexican dad, is not feeling the whole cannabis vibe. You know, the same thing with Dominicans. You know, we got the older generation where, you know, multi Latino stigma you know, with the cannabis not, is strong. Right, right. So now, you know, you, you said, you know, you're praising your dad and, you know, you're saying sorry, but I'm sure your dad will be very proud because you're a boss lady. You know what I mean? So you're kind of defeating <laughs> the stigma. You know what I mean? So it's kind of cool that, you know, you we, we, we kind of share that bond because we... That's kind of where we come from. Like, damn, you know, we don't want to disappoint mom and, the, and shit, but this is what we love, you know? And we always like to explain to, like, you know, people that, you know, are just, like, you know, more, like, third, fourth generation. Like, you guys think stigma's bad in America, like, the last 50 years. You have no idea the stigma in Latino countries where they look at it like if you smoke heroin or you smoke crack when it came to cannabis. So it's like... Yeah, you know, we've always, like you said, like we had that, that torn where we wanted to be re rebellious and revolutionary because we were born in the U.S., but we're first generation Dominican. So we have this heavy influence of the way that things are seen back in the old ways in our, in our household. Except that here's the weird thing. I, I found out that, like, I think maybe even mi abuelita was using the marijuana plant the the uh, como los palitos yes mm -hmm. in um in alcohol for arthritis ah look at that so marijuana la mota este is not something that is foreign even though the thing is is that the narrative as you know because I actually I taught a class about oh. marijuana so I'm a professor well look I'm Mexican I'm an immigrant so I have 16 jobs. <laughs> <laughs> that stereotype ain't wrong <laughs> fuck that <laughs> you know that so one of them is that I'm a I'm a professor and I ended up teaching a class about how it is that people immigrants became no, seen as illegal during the same period of time that marijuana went from being highly illegal to legal uh. como es de que eso pasó todo eso es parte de una narrativa mm. mira What happens with marijuana in the United States is very similar to what happens with cocaine in the United States also. Both of these were legal, right? They were legal. They were not um, a, a crime. It was not a crime to consume. Race becomes involved. Cocaine is tied to black men. And the whole thing is, is that, oh, wait, black men are going to do cocaine and they're going to rape white women Cocaine must be made illegal in the same way that marijuana, Mexicans mm -hmm. do marijuana. Mm -hmm. Mexican men are going to smoke marijuana and they're going to rape white women. Therefore, must be declared the illegal. Like I'm simplifying it. I'm mm -hmm. simplifying yeah. it. But basically, marijuanero is a, narr is a narrative that was created in the United States against Mexicanos who were maybe consuming marijuana, who maybe we were, in fact, coño, because we were fucking building your uh, <laughs> railroads, you know, or, and, and doing all of your hard work and not getting paid, etc. Mm -hmm. 
And we brought this from the motherland, from, I don't, I don't know enough about the history, but desde los Aztecas vamos a decir, you know, people were consuming. So, (laughs) so, but the United States, the American media categorizes and and labels it as Mexican marihuaneros. That Mm -hmm. is how, that is how we are first kind of categorized. We are seen as druggies. Um, and as, and marijuana is our drug, black men, it's cocaine. And so the, so Mexicanos and Latinos begin to consume that same stupid narrative. They get la marihuana esto, que la marihuana aquello. Plus the church, plus the church. Let's not forget the church. Thank you very much. (laughs) Plus the church, which by the way, you know, like I love liberation theology in terms of Catholicism. It is a beautiful form of Catholicism. But I am not a believer in, um, in organized religion. Con todo respeto, yo soy muy espiritual, so I'm not diminishing that. But I don't believe in um, a, a, a religious kind of outlook that is telling you what you can and can't do. And frankly, as a Latina Mexican raised as a Catholic. Yeah, they pushing that on heavy, heavy. Dude, you know, like, why do you want me to go to confess? I haven't done anything wrong. But now I have to go to, me tengo que ir a confesar, so I have to create something to say that I did wrong, even though I did nothing wrong. What's that? And now you're punishing me. It's some weird shit. So we do, we do end up con este prejuicio. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write about and and talk about the can, and it's very, by the way, it's not a big part of the book. It's not a huge part of the book. I would have liked for it to be a little bit more, but you know, I, I, they had to cut a hundred thousand words out of the book. So a lot of stuff had to go, but I wanted, I do believe in, in taking away the stigma. Um, And now the person who I never thought would ever come around ever, me mama has come around. I mean, she's not, She's not consuming. No, I mean, my mama tiene No, but the information, años. she's willing to receive the information. But she's willing to, because I basically at one point, I'm sorry to reveal, but I was like, ma, look, seriously, like of the entire family, you're one of the few who don't smoke. The majority of todo mundo fuma. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> I mean, maybe they don't smoke all the time, every day, pero but everybody's okay with fuma. it. Right. But, you know, tú eres la que no. Entonces, she was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. And also because my uh, other hipper aunts who are in their 80s do smoke. And they're like, ya, Berta, deja eso. You know, they do. What was it, Maria, que you felt comfortable with? I don't know if you had did it before, but in this book, basically, you came out of the cannabis closet publicly and, like, on record, like, in your book, like, you know, really telling people how it affected your life was this like the first time you really did that or had you really publicly mentioned it before in the same manner? Never. And this, and you're my first interview with members of the cannabis community. Oh, um, thank you. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm hoping that this inspires other people to ask me to join their podcasts because um, I, I want to honor this community. Um, why? Because, you know, part of what I've done as a journalist has always been to look at the other or communities que están como echados para allá or, mm-hmm. you know, like, like, you know, the South Bronx. I've always loved the South Bronx because people always trash the South Bronx. This is how I 
move in the world. You know, I speak to people that a lot of people don't speak to. Like before even I would speak to white supremacists because nobody would speak to white supremacists. Mm -hmm. You know, they were like, now everybody speaks to them, right? And they have so much visibility. But I'm always looking for like the under underground. Yeah, who's not getting and so, reached. Exactly. And so to be able to talk about cannabis, you know, and it's what it can do for people um, is to me very important because this is a, is not a community that should be um, set aside. Um, incredibly creative people are part of the cannabis community. Can we think about, let's say, Frida Kahlo, mm. you know, and I, I don't know if Diego Rivera smoked, but definitely Frida Kahlo smoked. Um, <laughs> I don't know if Frederick Douglass smoked, but maybe he did. Shit. I know he smoked a pipe, you know, maybe he smoked. Um, you know, I don't know enough about our real founding fathers and founding mothers in this country, the native people, well, you know, know who are know our ancestors, flag, right? We know the first flag was made of hemp. Ah, bueno, para que ve. Ah, bueno. Entonces, so... We know one of the biggest I, I, musical revolutions in history, which is jazz, is all inspired by cannabis and all was done so people enjoy while consuming cannabis. See, now, that's very interesting, and thank you for saying so, because I think that the narrative, the incorrect narrative, is that actually it it's very... Jazz is very heroin tied, and it's like what you guys are saying is like no. no. Louis Armstrong no, was that, very public about his cannabis use and stuff. Oh, like that. absolutely. What did you did you just say, Louis Armstrong? Yes, 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 yes. Oh, he, uh, he was all the way public with it. No. Yes, yes. Oh, see, now I'm having because Louis Armstrong is like Louis Armstrong. He, wow. Right. It's crazy. Thank you for that correction. And, um, you know, yeah. I'm a huge jazz aficionado. Oh, so like jazz, the, jazz is on my radio in my apartment 24 hours a day. Jazz is on the radio, old school radio, but like the kind that Shit. you dial. That's, <laughs> I, we I, listen to jazz on I, the radio. I'm, I'm amazed I could just put you on to anything. Shit. Exactly. Genius like you. So I want to ask you a real quick, simple question that I'm sure every well, a lot of people will ask you. Um, so why, uh, why the title? Once I was you. So we really struggled with the title. No sabes. Oh my God, you guys struggled so much because when you're writing a book like this, like you're not thinking about the title. That's not the way it works. You're thinking about the construction of the book. You know, the book is really mul multiple books in one. It's not just my story. There's a lot of immigration history. There's a lot of journalism and kind of inside business, inside the business journalism. So I kind of tattletale on a few people about <laughs> stuff that they pull. Um, it's a it's a feminist, uh, you know, manifesto in many ways because I'm a survivor of rape and I didn't know it. Mm. I didn't really understand it. Mm. Um, and then there's like like just American history, racism, civil rights movement, um, and immigration policy. How is it that this country says it loves immigrants, but coño nos tratan como mierda? Mm. Like they treat us like shit. Like how did that happen? So trying to deconstruct that. So I actually, the, 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 um, ¿cómo se llama? I don't even remember what it's called. Hold on. Maybe that's because I already spoke. Let's see. The introduction. <laughs> the introduction was written after I had written 
all of the chapters, I went back to write the introduction. And the introduction is called, it's called A Letter to a Girl at a McAllen Airport. And this is a story of a little girl who I see in the airport in McAllen, Texas, um, who is one of the children who has been taken from her parents. Mm. She's a, an immigrant refugee child. And she's with another group of children. I don't remember if it was 10 or 12 or 15 kids who are being, um, they're in the airport. They're about to be, frankly, trafficked, wow. you know, by the government. That's when they were putting kids in cages. They're still putting kids in cages, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. they are yeah. still, every single night, there are yeah. children yeah. who look like you and me and my son and my family who are sleeping inside a cage. Yes. Entonces, eh, this is a letter to, uh, to a little girl in the McAllen airport, and it's me kind of encountering her and this moment of, of, of what I'm seeing, what I'm witnessing in front of my face. You know, Donald Trump built his entire administration and his campaign on making little girls like her a threat uh, on making men like you a threat. Mm. And so I, um, you know, I basically, at the end, I'm saying to her, you know, I'm speaking, I'll just read this part of the book. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm in the airport now, I'm in front of these kids and I'm, I'm talking to the man who is trafficking them, this government agent. Um, I'm talking to him because he wouldn't let me speak to the kids, but I'm actually speaking to them. They all speak Spanish. Todos son niñitos desde cinco años a como catorce años. They're oh, kids. God. Horrible. Like a five-year-old, <clears throat> an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old. Kids who don't know each other with adults who don't know them, who are being taken to cities they don't know. So <clears throat> I'm saying to them, I continued speaking to the kids. Ellos tienen el derecho de decirle lo que quieran a una periodista o no. Quiero decirles, quiero decirles que estamos al tanto, que traten de no tener miedo, que ustedes no son los enemigos. Children, you have the right to speak to journalists. You are wanted. You are not the enemies. I said all of this in Spanish because I wanted you, little girl, to understand me, to hear my voice and know that I saw you. I see you because once I was you. Mm -hmm. That was deep. Entonces lo que pasa is that in the writing of this book, what ends up happening, you guys, is that I realized, I didn't know this, that in fact, when I arrived in this country, me trataron de quitar de mi mamá. Mm. So I could have been that little girl. I, I was could have once been. You. Yeah. And also I think like the the statement here is like I want people to see ourselves like I want we want to see ourselves in each other, right? We don't want people to look at us like oño. You know, you immigrant, you you Spanish speaking, you Dominican, you marihuanero, mm -hmm. you this. No, we want you to see yourself in me. That's how I try to move in the world, is I try to see myself in you. As a human being, not as some, uh, not some box to check off. Exacto. 
Now, Maria, I heard, you know, in the urban neighborhoods where we grew up, you get all the best information from the barbershop. The best rumors. That's where you get the real juice <laughs> and the real credible information is from the barbershop. What they told me in the barbershop in my neighborhood is that you had previously done a book based on the gangs in New York. Can you elaborate on that oh, to us and help us understand how how did you what, what was the epiphany in writing a book that? about such of this thing? So when I um, one summer in Chicago, I ended up working in the community known as Pilsen. It's the Mexican barrio in New York City, and I was actually working with young people, and a lot of them happened to, um, you know. Uh, be tied to gangs, the Latin Kings, actually, um, back then. And I'm talking about 19, I'm talking about 1980, 1980, 1981. Um, And I had exposure. And so again, for me, somebody who was in a gang was not a gang member. Ah! Yeah, to you. Yeah, it was just, okay, I know him. He's from down the block. (laughs) I I know him. He's a sweetie, baby face, you know, uh, Mario, you know, I'm thinking of the names <clears throat> that they had. Um, they were people I knew. And so being um, anywhere near whatever's a gang member or something was not something strange for me. And um, in New York City in the year, I, mean, I am going to forget the year because I'm really bad with years, but it would have been in the early 1990s, a very famous crime occurred. You guys probably remember it was um, a kid by the name of Brian Watkins who was killed in the subway. He was stabbed to death when he protected his mom who was getting her, her purse ripped away. And they were on their way to the U.S. Tennis Open. Mm-hmm. They were catching the number seven train. And it was a very famous crime in New York in the early 1990s because it was youth violence. And people hadn't really seen that, like teenagers with weapons. Mm -hmm. And of course, it was like, oh, it's all kids of color. Right. You know, it's all black and Latinos. And it really wasn't. But that was kind of like, and if you go back to the to the newspaper at that time, like the New York Post and the Daily News, it was like gangs, you know, gang members attack Utah tourists, Mm -hmm. you know, murder in the subways. It was like very amarillista, very yellow. And I was like. Like gangs you know didn't what? happen I, in the seventies for some reason, but okay. Yeah, right. and I was like, you know what? I I know gangs. I'm not so sure this is what you call a gang. And so what I did, because this is what a journalist does, is that I I got on a subway and I went out to the neighborhood where the alleged perpetrators lived, or perpetrator. His name was Rockstar, um, and I hung out just hanging out with the people, you know, as a journalist. And I was like, so talk. And it was like, there weren't gangs. What they were is crews. And you guys all Mm -hmm. get a crew. People understand it's a crew. It's your crew. Your crew is different than your gang. A gang is a hierarchical organization that has a top-down organization. Mm -hmm. You have to be, you know, jumped in. There's initiation. There are things that you have to do that are part of being in a gang. But your crew, you know, honestly, your crew, you may go fuck somebody up. You may not do all mm-hmm. good things with a crew, but you're not. It's a loose thing. And so the book ended up being an interview, uh, a series of interviews with gang members. But it's actually called Cruise, C-R-E-W-S, 
gang members talk to Maria Hinojosa. And so it was a book of interviews with members of crews. In New York, there was a Latino crew out in Queens that were knew this kid, Rockstar, who had committed this crime. I did a story about it for NPR, and an editor heard it, and she said, would you write this book? I like the way that you talk to young people. I, I like the way that you don't have a judgment when you ask your questions. And so I did a book of interviews, and I hung out with um, this crew in Queens, and I hung out with... Uh, a crew of girls from uh, Puerto Rican girls, Latina girls from the Lower East Side. And I hung out with uh, a crew in Harlem. That was pretty intense. Harlem. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, um, this guy was like, um, he was actually talking to me about his father and he said about his father, he said, no, my dad, my dad does white collar crime. <laughs> and I was like, because his father was like, <clears throat> I, I, you know, I would call. And so the father would answer. The father was like, hello, you know, what's up? You know, I mean, it was like, yeah. so he was like white collar crime. I was like, what is this guy doing in a bank? You know, dealing with Wall Street. Yeah. And I said, what, do you, what, do you, what kind of crime? And he was like, oh, well, you know, we go down to Wall Street uh, over at lunchtime and he dresses up. He wears a suit and we go into the fancy restaurants and when people aren't looking, we take their suit jackets because they'll hang their suit jackets over mm -hmm. the over the seat, and we'll just take we'll just take the suit jacket <laughs> or you know hustle. do the thing, the New York hustle, no, reach no, into the pocket, take out somebody. you know. And so he was like, <clears throat> "It's white collar crime because we're committing it against people who work in white collar." <laughs> <laughs> I got a damn. I haven't told that story in a long time. You guys are making me remember oh, a lot of funny man. stuff. Thank That's you. That's what we want. That's what we want. So that was the first book. It was a book of interviews with gang members, uh, with guy, well, different people who are part of crews. And then I wrote a second book um, about somebody who you know. It's actually called Raising Raul, Adventures mm -hmm. Raising Myself <laughs> and My Son. Uh, so <laughs> how how was that? What was the Raul. thought process? Because now we all know. 20 you know in in the 2000s and this new era <coughs> of modern day living you know parenting has changed so much you know me and him are newly found fathers so we completely understand you know i have a six-year-old his yeah, daughter three-year-old three-year-old so we're just learning <laughs> so we, we, what is your perspective <clears throat> on parenting now in this new modern day you know what you um i think you have to be really honest i think we you know, actually, that was one of the things that we did hide from the kids was um, when we consumed cannabis was actually Herman and I did not want our kids to see us smoking because we didn't want them to think that smoking per se was OK. Right. You understand? The, whole, the act of smoking. Yeah. yeah. Like the smoking. <clears throat> like if we would have. Yeah, because they'll <clears throat> pick up cigarettes a, by mistake or something. Exacto. Yeah, I get it. So we didn't want them to see that. Um, but other than that, we were very honest. Um, and I think I'm a big believer in honesty. Um, we were very authentically and organically tied to our immigrant roots. Herman and I, we speak Spanish in the home, mostly. Raul Ariel um, learned Spanish first. He didn't know a word of English when we dropped him off at pre-K when he was three years old. He was like, <laughs> what? Um, so very much <clears throat> the belief in raising kids, if we can, multilingually. Um, honesty you've got to, they've got to be able to feel like they can be honest with you. 
because these things, they're going to be exposed to issues of race, racism, <clears throat> sexism, drugs. We don't want them to be consuming stuff that's bad. I remember having a conversation and saying, look, we can talk about drugs and we have to. This was early on. And I just remember early on just saying, but please do me a favor. Don't consume anything white. <laughs> that, Great advice. That's, yeah. <laughs> right. That's a different, that's a different kind. That's We're talking different, about something else. Yeah. That's a different type you know, of vibe. So we have to talk about that. Um, you know, I realized that with my daughter, I think with my son too, I think it's harder, uh, a mom with a son, but with my daughter, very open conversations around sex and sexuality, um, because I realized now in the writing of the book, actually it was in the writing of the book that I wanted to make sure she was never assaulted. And so that was why I felt like it was really important to be super open and clear with our communication. So yeah, I think um, your daughters will need that, um, know that they can have open communication um, and a lot of love, you know, um, raising Latino and Latina children, raising kids of color, of any background, immigrant background, um, even white folks who are raising um, allyship kids, um, but for them, a lot less. For, for people of color right now, this is a really challenging time. You know, I think about the fact that um, I was being raised in a really challenging time in the United States of America, the 1960s. And everybody kind of looks back to that moment like, whoa, you know, and I write about it. That's what the book is. There's a big chunk about that being raised in the 60s and 70s in the civil rights era, you know, seeing Martin Luther King like he was alive, you know, like he was alive. He spoke to me. Um, and I lot of, in a lot of ways, I, I, trace my roots back to those moments. So we're living through those moments now. Your kids are consuming this now. The things that they're hearing are impacting them. The things that they hear about Donald Trump make them afraid. The things that they hear about, you know, whatever they see people getting arrested and any of that, they're, they're taking it in. Um, I just wrote a, an op-ed for the New York Times. I don't know if it's going to get published, but I, the first line that I write about is that I, I don't remember Nixon running on his law and order platform the way Donald Trump is running on a law and order platform, which is a bunch of bullshit. It's racism. Um, but I do remember being a little girl, six years old, and living in fear and knowing that if George Wallace got elected, who was an avowed racist and a segre segregationist, that, that as a little Mexican girl, I was going to have to find a basement to hide in. Mm. Esas cosas te marcan. And so all I'm saying is that they also produce human beings who are badasses. Chingonas, in the Mexican <laughs> word. Yeah. Like yourself. Yeah, it, these times do produce that. They and, do. and that's why you decided to write this book about parenting because you, you understand the complexity of it. What was it, the epiphany that you felt like you had to put it down on paper and really express well, yourself? <clears throat> no, to be honest with you, I, I was hoping to write a book about other people. I wanted to write a book about women being mothers of color and kind of managing, you know, becoming the majority, no longer being, you know, minority mothers raising kids of color, but rather like, wait, it's a multicultural world. How are we doing it? 
And the publishing industry was not interested in that book. They were like, but we want to hear your story. You're a new mother. How are you doing this? How are you managing? What are you, what lessons are you passing on? And so it was, <clears throat> it's a beautiful book. I haven't read it in a while, but people really love it. Um, it's out of print now. Maybe we should bring it back. It's called Raising Raul, Adventures Raising Myself and My Son. And it is a book about being a Latina mother. And uh, sadly, it didn't sell a lot. So I'm really scared about sales, um, which is why we really want everybody in the cannabis community to Everybody's buy this book. Buy it. Please buy five Once copies. Give, give it away. Once I was you. Once I was you. Where um, can they buy the copy online? You can find um, you can find all of the links on my social media. Just go to Simon and Schuster and put in Maria Hinojosa. Once I was you, the links will come up. Um, but they're everywhere. Um, <clears throat> So it, it didn't sell a lot, which is why it took me a long time to write another book because it's very scary. There's a lot of pressure on us as Latino and Latina authors. We have to perform. So it's, it's scary, you know. Um, so when, when I say that, especially to the cannabis community, because I know that there's money in the cannabis community. It's not like it was before, where if you were tied to cannabis, somehow you were kind of like scraping by. No, Mm-mm. no. Like there's money in the cannabis community. It is a powerful business community and I want to be connected to it for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Maria, I got a very, very important question because, you know, one of our big missions here <clears> is that, you know, we all aspire to inspire. So me and Ramon were able to be bold enough to take the leap and we were a little scared ourselves when it came to the journalism <laughs> and speaking publicly and all that. But we know that there's a lot of other people that are maybe scared to take that final step. So we need the media, you know, superhero that Maria is to tell mm-hmm. us, like, if there's a young lady or a young man up there of color or anybody else that is thinking mm-hmm. about getting into journalism now that you're saying it's much easier than when you were when you got into it being the first Latina lady in NPR 30 years ago, how what, what advice would you give them and how would they go about that? Um, <clears throat> I'm so glad that you asked this question because... We need journalists in the United States of America. We need a lot of journalists. We need Latino and Latina journalists. We need black journalists. We need Caribbean journalists. We need immigrant journalists. We need journalists of every background. And we need them to not give up. This is not easy. But as you guys know, life is not easy. Nothing in life worth having is easy. Everybody would have it. You know what I'm saying? Like, even if you're like, oh my God, I just want to get a cushy job you know, go to college, right. you know, and make a big salary. It's like, if you think that's easy, it's not easy. And even that has changed now, so. And and even that, exactly, even that has changed. But also it's like the selling of your soul part, mm. you know. So for me, you know, I didn't know it when I was a little girl, mostly because I never saw any journalists who looked like me. So I was never like, oh, I want to be a journalist. But now there are journalists who look like me. Mm-hmm. And so... I want, <clears throat> I want a young woman or a young man to say like, oh my God, I want to do that. But then they have to understand that it's basically like a mission. It's not just like any job. Like doing the work of journalism in the United States right now, it's like, it's like we're, I don't want to um, equate us. It's a, bit, it's a weird word that came into mind, maybe because I just smoked. But like mm. freedom fighters, mm. you yes. know, like we're, we're really, 
you know, we're being attacked right now by this administration. We are being attacked for being journalists. People think that, you know, oh, my God, you know, they killed journalists in Iraq. Oh, my God, they killed journalists in Mexico. Well, maybe they're not killing journalists right now in the United States, but we are being attacked. And how we do our work in the United States is being attacked. And so I want young people to just be like, I'm going to do it. And maybe they're watching television and they watch MSNBC and they see uh, an, a, a, a black anchor, actually sees an immigrant, board, uh, daughter of immigrants, Joanne Reed, who's like a huge success right now on MSNBC. I am lucky enough to every now and then be on her show. You know, maybe they see her and they're like, I want to be on cable news. I want to be, I'm like, bet. There you go. Go be on cable mm -hmm. news. There are others of us who are doing it differently. <clears throat> We're doing, you know, cannabis podcasts from our homes or whatever. But the mission of understanding that you want to do journalism, that you want to capture these stories is understanding that we have such an important role in American history. And that's what keeps me going. That's why I keep doing the journalism at Latino USA. That's why we have our politics talk show in the thick. You know, that's why I wrote the book, you know, Once I Was You. Mm -hmm. That's why I'll go when I'm invited to do television wherever. Because, <clears throat> because I talked about that sense of responsibility. I feel really responsible. And so I just hope they never give up and that they, again, it's not easy, but nada es fácil. Nada, nada es fácil. No, thank but you jump for those in. Kind we, words. We, we need them. Yeah, we need them. We need them badly. Because me and Ramon always try to, you know, um, you know, promote the same thing, but we're not as accomplished as you are. So, you know, we need them to know it's not just us that feel like that. Everybody feels like that. Like, this is a time when now you know, anybody can really have their voice heard and really can really take things to another level, thanks to the internet, thanks to the, all the virtual stuff that, unlike when you started, you had to go through certain gates and certain parameters to get on a screen. Now things have changed and people really need to capitalize off of that and really, you know, let the, let the light shine, you know, on the world. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about Desus and Mero. I mean, you know, Desus and Mero, you know, they were just shooting the shit, you know, doing stand-up, whatever. And now they're like huge successes on Showtime, yeah, which is crazy. good because, you know, Mero has four kids. So I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> you know, those, that's a lot of bills to pay right there. Yeah. Um, gotcha. But um, I, I, I just think it's really important that we realize that, you know, whether it's Frederick Douglass and people are like, who's Frederick Douglass? So Frederick Douglass. Trump is so stupid, he thought he was alive. He actually oh, talked about, yeah, you know, right. he's so stupid. But, you know, Frederick Douglass was born into slavery um, and then became a free man and then was the first uh, black man to uh, create and run a newspaper called the North Star. His statue is on 110th Street and Central Park mm -hmm. North right here, um, if you ever want to see it. Um, and so he was like, the father of saying we have to mm -hmm. <laughs> be around for smoking in front of Frederick Douglass. Shout out well, to look at his head. I, I think, I, I definitely think Frederick Douglass, I, no disrespect. He looked like I he have was received, <laughs> I have received, I, I did receive the Frederick Douglass 200 award. So I am, and I received that from one of his 
ancestors gave me the award. Oh shit! But if you but if you look at that statue and you look at Frederick Douglass's crazy ass hair, mm -hmm. you do think like he was he had something in that pipe. Sorry, he might have been um, growing. <laughs> sorry, right? Sorry. So Frederick Douglass teaches us that we are part of a continuum of correcting the narrative in this mm -hmm. country. It's our job. That is, that is our job. And so we do it in a small scale in telling the history to our kids so that my son knows the history, right? Proper history of this country. But we also um, do it by writing a book or by doing podcasts or becoming journalists. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you, you're, you're making a huge step, right? Because for example, for yourself, right? You, you got Raul, right? You, you, Raul was pro-cannabis and all that shit. Mom now is becoming a little bit pro-cannabis. Not saying she's ready to consume, but now she's like willing to have conversations and all that other stuff, right? So you already did a big job by, by pretty much influencing the home, right? So now you went off on this 30-year journey. So, of course, a lot of influence. I hope so. It's, um, I don't walk around like that. And by the way, I'm only five feet tall. So when you guys were, you, we look up to her, I'm like, actually, nobody looks up to me. Really, truth is, nobody looks up to me. But, um, but I do, um, I do take my, um, my role in this country super seriously. I was born in Mexico. I'm a proud Mexican woman, immigrant woman. Um, I'm an American citizen now. Um, and I fight to try to be proud of what's good in this country. But I understand that that doesn't happen because other people are going to make it happen. It's going to happen because we're going to make it happen. Not somebody else. We got to make it happen. There you go. Exactly. Part of our goal <laughs> is here, like, you know, me and Ramona, we say even if we don't be, we're not exactly the ones in our movement to exactly take things to the next level. Hopefully we'll inspire people that look like us to be like us or bigger. And that is part of the goal. Y'all sell yourself short. <clears throat> you keep on saying like, what well, we're doing, we're tiny. We're like, you know, and I'm like, I don't, I, I think <clears throat> when you think about trying to do a business like yours in New York city, <clears throat> when you're kind of breaking through all kinds of barriers, I, I think it's really cool. I sadly was never able to be at your spot. I heard all about it. I'm hoping one day to be, you know, post pandemic to be in the space of the happy monkey, um, the actual space. Mm -hmm. But I would, um, I, I would think big, you know, don't, don't keep selling yourselves of like, we're just tiny and we, nah. <laughs> we try to be humble. That means a lot coming from you. Absolutely. That brings me to our next question, Maria. Mm -hmm. We ask everybody that's ever been on here the million-dollar question. Yeah, and I'm and we're curious really for curious yeah, to I'm know curious. about you and your opinion. super mind and opinion of what you would think. So we ask everyone if you had to describe Happy Monkey, the movement, the media, everything the events, you've everything you've heard in one word, what would it be and why? Um, one word? One word. One word. <clears throat> Damn. <laughs> one word. Well, the first word I thought of was joy. Why joy? <clears throat> Just because you guys seem to have a lot of fun. But then I thought freedom. Um, and those two are kind of related. I, I, I just think that, um, you know, we are living through really tough times right now. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
I remember in 2016 when Donald Trump was um, was elected, somebody said to me, you know, the most interesting art was created in the most horrible times during World War II, during the Vietnam War. Phenomenal art was created. And so I just said, like, artists and free thinkers have got to help us get through this. And so in that sense, I really feel like we all are pushing boundaries in seeking freedom because we are being caged in physically, um, mentally. You know, white supremacy is real. It is structural. And so, you know, being caged in and fighting against white supremacy is a thing. And so we need to consistently believe in ourselves. You need to have joy. Like that's a really important part. You know, in some ways, maybe cannabis, that's something else that I get from cannabis is the capacity to find joy. Like right now, I'll probably, my son will ask me, what are we eating? And we'll figure out what we're going to eat. And then I'll probably smoke because he'll roll something for me. <laughs> and, um, and then I'll so go convenient. walk the dog and I'll look at the moon, you know, and I'll commune with the moon and I'll look at the trees and I'll, you know, feel the breeze. And this yeah, is all yeah. for me. It's yeah, it's very ancestral. Um, it's very ancestral. Um, and so that's what we need. So in a way, I'm saying go back, you know, go back ancestrally, but also I'm saying be liberated and free and looking towards the future. Um, but the root of it is you have to find joy. And joy is really hard. You know, I'm, I'm in therapy. I talk about all of these things very publicly. I, I just posted on my Twitter that I'm in therapy again. Um, my therapist is amazing, Latina, a refugee survivor herself. Um, and sh- sh- we just talk a lot about the ancestral power that we have and how we have to take this moment of so much difficulty. Y no hay de otras. Either we're going <clears> to, <throat> either we're going to go down, sinking down because we can't, or we're going to have to find a way to bring ourselves up mm-hmm. and think of possibility. I think of, you know, I've allowed myself to imagine a little bit like, Oh my God, I mean, I'm not taking any vaccine anytime soon. <laughs> certainly not under, uh, no, not, not, certainly not before this election. I'm not doing anything. But, you know, I've, I've, I've begun to imagine like a world beyond. And I'm like, we have to start, <clears throat> we have to start playing in that world of possibility. We have to. It's time to emerge. I think so. Well, this is a time of disruption, and, you know, that's why uh, right now me and Ramon, you know, we don't have control of anything else. You know, we we try not to get caught up in the doom and gloom because they get enough of that from CNN and CNBC. So we try (laughs) to stay positive and optimistic and show people different perspectives and that during all of this, you know, we can still continue moving forward. Absolutely. Well, we want to thank you, Maria, man, because we know you could be anywhere in the world yeah, and you're here with yeah, us. Yeah. And you drop so many jewels for us, and you, you definitely uh, inspire a lot of people that watch and help them understand that, you know, when you put your mind and your heart into something, you can accomplish great things. So thank you so much. But before we leave, we want you to 
again tell people about the new book where, where they, they can find mm-hmm. you what things does you and your companies have coming up for the rest of 2020 so they can stay up to date <clears> and <throat> know that that maria is officially part of the family of cannabis and everything that encompasses it <laughs> so the book is out officially september 15th Uh-oh, you can pre-order it now <clears throat> yeah yeah so you can pre-order it now um just through either find me on social media maria Hinojosa, or uh, simon and schuster um <clears throat> atria books um and i i just really want to say thank you i mean i um i feel like a lot of times um what we're doing is that we're kind of living well we always are living in multiple worlds right that's how we do this especially as immigrants um as Latinos, o sea, tenemos una puerta en la, una, un pie en la casa y otro pie afuera. You know, we're always mm-hmm. kind of managing this. And so I just love the fact that a book that is, yeah, it is published by Simon & Schuster. That is like a big effing deal. Like, what? <laughs> Simon & Schuster, you know, yeah, right. like on, like on, you know, 6th Avenue, like 49th Street. It has a whole building. Simon & Schuster has a whole building. Shit. So this is, this is like a big effing deal. Right. And I'm super, super proud. My, my editor is Michelle Edna Mulligan. She's Latina working at Simon & Schuster. My agent is Latina, Adriana Dominguez. So we are doing this in the mainstream. Um, and at the same time, I'm really happy to be doing this. That is not necessarily the mainstream. Um, I'll tell you, when I interviewed Teach... Chichen, you know, from Chichen Chong. Chichen Chichen Chong. The original, original. Yes, yes. And I interviewed him like maybe, let's see, it would have been like maybe, let's say, 12 years ago. And I said to him, you know, like, when did you, when did you, did you ever imagine that Chichen Chong would become mainstream? Because he actually had just sold out Las Vegas. In the middle of a recession, they had sold out Las Vegas. They were the only, Chicha Chong were the only ones that sold it. And he said, sweetie, he said, I always knew we were mainstream. I always knew we were mainstream. That's surprising. I always knew it. And it's true, right? Because when you think about Chicha Chong, it's pretty freaking mainstream. Everybody knows who they are. Word. (laughs) Who the fuck doesn't know who Chicha Chong is? Right. Who doesn't know who Chicha Chong is? And so it is, in fact, very mainstream. And so I appreciate being part of the mainstream, but it also, you know, looking at it from different levels. And, um, and I'm very appreciative uh, to the cannabis community and to um, the ancestors who brought cannabis to the forefront. Um, Yeah. I'm all about that. You know, I stopped smoking. I actually mostly, I know it's people's, but I thought it would, yeah, I thought it was better to not smoke, but you know, now this and that. So I'm, I don't know. I, I go back and forth. And also I didn't know anything. It was only until this year that all I consumed was Reggie. Yeah. <laughs> He's an OG. It's okay. That's it. We took you away. Don't worry. Plastic, no, more, plastic. no more. No more. Reggie for mom, my G. That's Come it. on. He What's says no more Reggie for mom. Only no. exotics. <laughs> Little plastic ziplocks. You know, uh, I'm not going to reveal because you know. But like Reggie, that so Reggie. It's over that for Reggie. Is, Don't worry, mom. 
it's only now that I have. Like that. that was awesome information, have, by the way. <laughs> also, you should know I have. I, I'm one of those people who maybe, apart from people in the like business, have been to more. Um, se llama? dispensaries. Because mm. before the pandemic, I was on a plane every week. So name the state where it's legal. I was going to a dispensary just mm. to check it out. Just just be like, what? So you can ask me anything about dispensaries in multiple states, and I have experience. I love this. This is dope. So you're ready. You ready? Ready for this world? Over here, <laughs> no man, but you definitely uh, have been like and very enlightening. You know, I didn't know that yeah, all these things. A lot of shit. Learned a lot. You know, um, definitely. You know, for people like us that are just getting our our feet wet in journalism and media really, you know, helps us see how far you can take it if you put your mind and your heart into it, you know? Well, thank you to the both of you. I, You guys have made me think about things that really haven't thought about in decades. Yeah. So. That's, what we like. That's what we like. So, Maria, thank you and your family for everything. We appreciate you. Thank you for gracing us with your presence. Yes, and yes. Thank for you for all the jewels. Gracias. To everybody Gracias. out there. You already know this young lady dropped uh, so many jewels from you in so many different aspects of life. Yeah, as that always, heavy. That heavy. you know, uh, me and Ramon like to stay positive. We know it's uh, definitely a rough year and definitely not easy for everybody. But we want everybody to remember you're too, too blessed, blessed to be stressed. stressed. Things will get greater later. For now, checking out yes, Vlad, yes. Maria, Ramon to yeah, the next yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. Peace, love and happiness. Peace, love, and happiness, yo. Paz, <laughs> amor, y felicidad. Yeah. Ah. What's good, everybody? This is your nigga, Ralph, trying to keep you fresh with the info from Happy Monkey. Every single podcast, you already know what it is. If you haven't followed us yet, follow us on Instagram at happymonkey underscore or happymonkeygoodies. Now, remember, that's monkey with a U. Also, if you haven't checked us out, we're on YouTube. So check out our channel, Happy Monkey TV. Keep us current, live, and everything with the culture.